The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back. I'm Nigel Barker. This is The Shaken and Stirred Show, and I am here with my pal, Tom Astor. Good evening. By the way, he just sent me a text with himself playing rather magically his guitar with some fabulous sort of red-looking drink. And I asked him to play for us, and nothing. He's like, no. You know, really obstinate and difficult. Oh, no, he's quite happy to send me a text of him playing, but actually play for you guys, and he gets shy, if you can believe it. I am quite shy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, if you know him like we do, we all know he's anything but shy. Very shy. Well, Tom, what are you drinking, for goodness sakes? Do you know what I'm drinking? I'm going to put it out here. I'm drinking something which you're going to be... Rather, I mean, if you can match this, then I will... I can't match that. It's, first of all, gigantic. This is my Maris Court Mojito. So it's my own homemade rum mojito containing... Well, actually, I'd like to say all the ingredients are from here, but they're not, because lime I haven't got, and also Perrier water I don't have. But basically, it's rum with a bit of good old Woodstock maple syrup, and it has got green gages, raspberries, blueberries, and blackberries in it from my hedgerows and garden, and mint. Fantastic. And mint. And do you blend yeah. it? Because it looks like it's a blend. No, dude, I'm trying to stir it. That's difficult enough. I mean, maybe I should have blended it, actually, looking at it. Oh, no, I thought you had blended it. Well, it looks fantastic, guys. It's, it looks unbelievable. It looks like a sort of a... It's hard to sort of describe what it compares to, because I've almost seen nothing like it. A jealous-making drink. It's a very much a jealous-making drink. And, I, and considering <laughs> after what I've got, I am in Michigan right now. I'm not in New York, where I normally am. And I've actually had to sort of rummage through the guest house I'm staying at, and I, I actually found a rather nice bottle of elite vodka and some club soda. And so I just made myself a very, very simple lemon and lime squeezed into vodka on the rocks with club soda. So it's not really a cocktail, kind of cheating, but nonetheless rather refreshing. And cheers. Chin chin. Hmm. Chin chin. Mm -hmm. Now, before we get on, we've got a very, very cool guest with an S today. We don't often have multiple guests on, but today we do, which is rather unusual, rather exciting. And um, they have done something very, very cool. <laughs> They've done many, many very cool things. In fact, they are critically acclaimed and award-winning. But before we get to them, as we always do on Shaken and Stirred, we would like to do some booze news. And I have been digging up some rather fun booze news. And Tom, I got a little bit of a game to play with you on this one, I think, mm. because I was looking up cocktails and their popularity during the pandemic. And it, it turns out that Google has actually just this week released results for the number one Googled cocktails per state in the United States. So it goes sort of like, what, what was the most Googled cocktail, if you like, in, and I'll give you an easy one to start off with, in Alabama, in the state of Alabama, during the pandemic, what do you think was the most Googled cocktail? Perhaps the ribbon and raspberry. Okay, well, no, you're close, but uh, <laughs> put it this way. It's, it's closer and more stereotyped than you'd imagine. So in Alabama, the number one was a hurricane. Okay, now I'll give you an easy one for the next one. Most Googled cocktail in the state of New York. A Manhattan. Oh, yes, boom, we got one right. <laughs> yes, I mean, really, right? It's quite, it's quite hilarious. Then this next one, I think it may be a little trickier. You're going to think outside the box with this. Montana. What were they Googling, trying to find out how to make in Montana during the pandemic? Well, what a cowboy's drink. We'll put it this way. They clearly were trying to think of something else. They were trying to pretend they weren't in Montana. So think of the complete opposite. Long Island iced tea. Well, exactly. But no, a blue Hawaiian which I thought was hilarious, that the most Googled cocktail in, in Montana during the pandemic was a blue Hawaiian. Quite frankly, Why? they wanted to be anywhere but Montana during the pandemic. That's <laughs> um, Louisiana was a bushwhacker. North Dakota was a kamikaze, which is even more terrifying. They were like, how do I make a kamikaze in North Dakota throughout the pandemic? And then Washington DC was an old fashioned. I just thought that was kind of hilarious, to be honest with you. And, and, and the list goes on and on. There's the actual most Google cocktail overall was the old fashioned. So more than anything, during the pandemic, wow. people got nostalgic and wanted an old fashioned. 
I love things like that. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. And actually, this is just a part of my own personal booze news. I, I, got a, I took a flight yesterday. I haven't taken many flights during this whole pandemic. Just recently started to fly and go to work again. And um, I was on the flight and I, I tried to order a drink. And it, it turns out that certainly Delta and apparently most airlines now are no longer serving alcohol on planes during the pandemic, I guess. Or, you know, they're saying that they may come back to it in the future, but because they, you know, for safety reasons, are not serving drinks anymore. So that was, for me, a bit of a, an eye-opener. I'm like, okay, well, that makes it even more dull to be on an airplane. It's bad enough as it is. That's, I'm like, are we allowed to bring our own? And that's apparently not allowed either. So anyway, there you go, people. <laughs> a little bit of crazy booze news. What happens if you're an alcoholic? Does that mean you can't fly anymore? I mean, would you just start sh- get the DTs halfway over? I, th- I think you're going to have to take a private jet, Tom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you. <laughs> and uh, talking about private jets, our guests today have no doubt jetted in to see us because that's the way they like to like to travel. So I know I, I often say we need a drum roll, but I feel with these particular two guests of ours, we definitely need a drum roll. They are two of my greatest and oldest of friends who have helped me very, very much in my career, in fact, helped me write a book, if you can believe that, called The Beauty Equation. I'm probably giving it away now. They're both brilliant writers, directors, producers, who have most recently completed a highly acclaimed documentary on the legendary fashion icon Pierre Cardin, called House of Cardin. Please welcome husband and husband team P. David Ebersol and Todd Hughes. Welcome, guys. Hi, guys. Hi. So nice to see you. And Tom. Hello, Tom. Hi there. Hi, guys. First of all, before we even get on to drinks, guys, I'm just looking at your outfits, and you are, you've, I mean, David, you've, you're wearing the Cardin, very, oh, the yeah. logo. <laughs> I've got a little necklace on, if you can see it. Ah, look, Steve. I can just about see that. A little, a little, um, I didn't know that Cardan did dog collars for humans, but I like that. <laughs> he did everything. He did everything. <laughs> he did everything. He literally did everything. I'm sure you stole that from Butch, didn't you? <laughs> Guys, what are you drinking? You know, we live in Palm Springs, and in our neighborhood, it's called Kings Point, and they make the most, they grow the most outrageous grapefruits next door. So we have some. So our favorite cocktail is to squeeze the grapefruits, mix them with, sparkling water, and then David's got it spiked with tequila, and I've got a virgin in a Pierre Cardin last. Right, you've got me drinking at two o'clock in the afternoon already. Listen, <laughs> I met you guys because of drinking. Literally, we went out, Tom. I took the, well, the, I don't know who took who out, to be honest with you, but we all went out for dinner many moons ago, and as far as I remember, got completely sloshed that evening. And, <laughs> I, and I knew at that point that these were people that I liked and wanted to be around <laughs> and have fun with, and they were our type of people, uh, because they managed to still conduct a relatively coherent conversation, sort of knee-deep in vodka, or whatever we were drinking at the time. So we're both curious. I mean, look, it's such tough times right now, and you know, it's, it's such an unusual moment to be doing almost anything, and certainly film production as we all know, is, is or has been at us almost a standstill. Yet you've managed to produce and uh, put together a documentary, a brilliant documentary on Pierre Cardin, which I've had the privilege of seeing in advance. How, how did you do that? How, what, what was that process been? What has the past six months been like for you? Well, you know, the, the film itself was, was uh, captured pre-COVID. So, and we could not do it now. We traveled the world. We went to China, Venice, Cannes, Paris, of course, several times, Tokyo, and we followed Mr. Cardin for a year. Uh, there's just no way that you could even make this movie in the current climate. But remember that we did premiere at the Venice Film Festival a year ago, last September. That was the world premiere. So we did finish the film, premiere the film with Pierre Cardin. He took the Orient Express <laughs> from Paris to Venice because he won't fly. He got a standing ovation when he came in the room, a standing ovation when the movie was over. We get, so We get to claim that one. <laughs> thank God we had that thrill yeah. of being there with Pierre Cardin and experiencing it with him. Then he saw his pal Jean-Paul Gaultier did his final fashion show at the Chatelet Theatre in Paris. So he rented it. And in April, we were going to have a huge premiere in Paris. He invited everyone, including the president. We were so excited. And of course... It didn't yeah, and so now that's been postponed to September, maybe October. But uh, what 
what we have been doing during COVID is that we've had another documentary shot. And so we actually have just completed the rough cut on our next film, which is about Trini Lopez, who just passed away from COVID. Last week. So, last week. My so goodness. we just happened to have that movie completely shot and in the can. So we've been holed up and working, doing our, doing our thing. It was, it was really devastating. We were going to do a 20 festival world tour with Cardan from March until now. We are going to go to Buenos Aires, all these Australia places yeah. we've never been. And we were so excited. And once we just took a deep breath and said, well, we're not going anywhere. We did the Trini Lopez. We finished it. Yeah. And so, you know, this whole quarantine has just been business as usual for us. But what is business as usual? So what, what does it mean, business as usual, for a filmmaker like well, yourself? This well, look how we live. <laughs> I know, I'm looking at that. What is this? What's happening here? It looks amazing. It's our, our space-age uh, uh, house, which is actually part of what inspired the Cardan Dock, which is that I had that silver couch made. There's a coffee a table space right here. design here. And the coffee table that's in the middle of it is Pierre Cardan. It was our first introduction to his design. I found that table. And from that, we sort of spun out and started started getting excited about what his design was. But business as usual for us, it's interesting because it's sort of both business as usual and business as completely unusual, which is that the Cardan film, which is now launching, is coming out in what's called virtual cinema, which means that it will play at movie theaters across the country starting August 28th. And you can find it at like your local art house theater, just like you might normally, but you order it from them online and watch it at home. So 25 plus theaters will be playing it, but you can also then get it, you can access that anywhere in the country. So it's kind of the space age release of the space age designers movie. But um, our daily life here, you have to get up really early because it's so hot. So we get up at like 5 a.m. and walk the dogs. Yeah. And then, you know, we put around, we exercise, and then we're inside by nine o'clock. And we work inside all day, editing. Our editing room is right back Yeah, that's the door. door. (laughs) But we're very lucky. We live right on the edge of the desert. So we're in nature. We've got a great market nearby. And so, and then we have all our, everything we need. Did you do all the editing yourself? This time, yes. This time, yes. We don't always. We actually love to hire editors and work with editors. But because of COVID, I was head of post-production at NYU Film School and at USC Film School. Editing was my background before I moved into uh, directing. And so it's something I know very well, and I just have to keep kind of translating my knowledge to the new technology <laughs> each time they change everything on us. But, uh, but yeah, so, so we've been editing but you know, this we, one by ourselves. We edited Hit So Hard by ourselves, too. Which is a great, great, great doc again. You know, it's funny, during this whole period, I mean, normally I, I quite, quite often get invited to premieres of movies, screenings of upcoming shows and things like that. And, you know, that's obviously a way that movies generate press around, you know, an upcoming show or whatever it is. And sort of the pivot that's happened, which I find quite interesting, and it seems to have worked quite well. And I'm wondering whether it actually doesn't work better than the actual premiere has been to send these sort of links to the people who would have gone otherwise and said, look, here's a link. Here's all the press and promo stuff that we have around the film. Yeah. Would you watch the film in the comfort of your home in the next week, for example? And by this date, would you please do a post on your social media on some level in your Instagram stories, on your Twitter, on your Facebook, with a link to the show, with a photograph of the movie, and, and here's collateral you can use. And the funny thing is, before this happened, right, you would go to the premiere, you would stand on a red carpet, you'd have your photograph taken, and you'd then go in, watch the movie, and you'd go home. And you wouldn't think anything of it. It was down to the you know, movie company movie to actually then use the photograph of you on the red carpet to push it out and hope that someone picked it up. And that was only half the time if you did something scandalous or the movie itself <laughs> was you know, a great movie. Now, I'm watching these movies, and then I get a text or I get an email from the PR company saying, Nigel, we know you've seen the movie, please do us a favor, in, and they're like, in these COVID times, please help us promote it. Please do a post. And so I'm doing these posts myself. I never used to do this. I'm doing far more for them than I ever did before because of this COVID times. And I see everyone else, I see, you know, like you've got the movie poster, you've got a link to the film, you've got all this stuff that you can easily put together. And it's packaged so nicely. 
So I, I'm wondering whether, you know, whatever happens, whether we'll ever go back to the norm, because this could be a better system. Well, you know, we've been sitting in these chairs doing publicity for days. <laughs> and tonight at five o'clock till 10 o'clock, we do all our Japanese press and tomorrow night too. And, you know, it's, I wish we were in Japan, but it's fine. And that's why you guys are so well lit and look so fantastic. <laughs> I was trying to wonder what's going on. Now I see what's happening. You're, you've, you've got this whole thing set up so beautifully. I'm like, okay. Well, you know, we never took a good picture until we met you. <laughs> well, thank you, darling. I still go chin out for my photos. I still put my chin out. <laughs> Our photos have improved vastly. <laughs> I do think the theatrical release of an independent film was always difficult. It was almost like advertising for streaming and home video. Because we were saying about, like, so the Linda Ronstadt documentary came through town recently here in Palm Springs, just pre-COVID. We're big fans. We go to the theater to go and see it. There's two people in the movie. So how can, how can anybody afford what it takes to put that movie out and then have just a couple of shows like, I should up to see it. So it's like, it is a new model, hopefully, that the advertising and the help that you get from sort of, you know, your, your friends and influencers that will put the word out for you that it all comes at the same moment and then people are able to get the movie. And people have much better home video, you know, with screen rooms to be able to watch. So you're not afraid they're watching it on some tiny little phone or, you know, their Trinitron TV. <laughs> Do you think the, the concept of going to the movie theater in America is, is, has been the demise of it? It was in decline. I think it tells us, do you think that this is gonna hasten the demise of movie theaters, this COVID thing, or do you think it'll they'll bounce back and people start going to movies again? It's the death of independent cinema, for sure. Because that was the only place that would show independent cinema. Now it's all going to be corporate. That's sad. But, you know, the going out experience now is just going to be for Mulan and the 3D whatever, Star Wars. Yeah. You I know? mean, people love to go to the movies. So it is possible that once independent cinemas open back up, that you'll get this kind of surge Maybe of much people smaller. wanting to support it and get out and see it. But I mean, it is kind of funny that when you think about it being limited to 25% capacity, that we were going out to see independent films that had 0.2%. Right, had no so if people get kind of uh, encouraged and start going out and seeing movies, then, then the theaters will stay in business. But they were already struggling. I mean, we would have movies come out and the the mantra was always, will people show up? That's what they're always saying. But will people show up? As opposed to, will they want to see it and wait for it and then watch it when they can get it at home? So uh, so it's been a shifting landscape for a long time. I don't, I don't know. I mean, a lot of our friends, and you guys can answer this too, when you say to them, well, how do you feel about going to a movie theater right now? Like, would you go? No, open. no, I wouldn't go. I, I would not go. I mean, obviously, the you know, it's always annoying when someone coughs in the movie theater. But now, when someone coughs now, you run for your bloody life, right? So it's, <laughs> it's, it's everyone just run for the hills. I mean, someone coughs. I mean, you know, it's, so the concept of it, and anyone behind you too, it's like everyone's going to want to be in the back row, right? No one's going <laughs> to want to be. In, yeah, you know, exactly. I'm like, who's behind me? You know, it's you, you're really going to have to be very careful about how you organize seats. No, I, I think not. I mean, I think it's, hopefully things will change. I mean, I just saw extraordinary footage, as we all did, uh, in Wuhan of everyone having a big sort of swimming party or whatever with people all over each other without masks. They oh. seem to have sorted out the world very, very quickly over there. So I, I assume that we, we surely must be able to do something like that relatively soon-ish. I saw in the UK there was a concert where people were, you know, on platforms, sitting down on chairs, but spread six feet apart with little pods of four people who must have been a group of some sort. You buy the pod and you sit, you get your pod and you sit in it. But yeah, I mean, I guess it'll come back in some other form, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. We've been going to restaurants here, though, when they were open. There were indoor restaurants, and we could go, and they just sort of spaced the tables out way more. And you got you walk in with masks, or you walk around the restaurant with your mask on, but otherwise you sat at your table with your friends as though your friends somehow came. It's very Cardin, if you ask me. It's very space age. Uh, and I want to get back to Cardin. I want to get back to, to the man himself. And you know, this is a person who, like, we all, obviously, everyone is familiar with Pierre Cardin. There's no doubt about it. His name is synonymous with, not just with fashion, but it, I think it's bigger. Than, it's so, it's branding. It's like, you know, I grew up as, as a kid and I, there were so many things that were Cardin. As you mentioned, he did everything. 
I mean, there was nothing that he sort of didn't touch and put his logo on. Uh, yeah. Whether it was so much of it was design, you couldn't really tell. Like sometimes like a T-shirt, for example. Yes, his logo is on there, but the, the design of the T-shirt is a, is a T-shirt. Right? I had a keychain with the Cardan little thing on it. I had, yeah. I had a belt with the Cardan thing on it. I, you know, the, but the pants came with the belt. I mean, it was one of those <laughs> sort of like rather weird, cheesy pair of pants that I was some, <laughs> kind of a cheap-ish type of store. Together, you know, had a belt already in the pant, you know, which my mother loved to get for me back in the day. That's not something I, I you know, hope ever comes back. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, was it just because of the sofa that you have in your house? It must have been more. What, what, what was the reason? No, it's a coffee table. Coffee table. But, but listen, it was divine intervention. It was crazy because we just loved him. We loved his. We got really obsessed with the furniture. Then we started finding the housewares and like the backgammon set in the lamps and the sheets and the towels. <laughs> then we find out he was the first designer to partner with car company, American Motors, to do the first designer package for the car, which was the AMC Javelin in 1972. And my brilliant husband found us one. I tracked it down and we bought it from a guy in Canada in like Saskatchewan and had it shipped here. And that was sort of like the tipping point of us being sort of a little over the edge. And then we went to Leeds to do our Mansfield documentary. And we started loading up on Le Disque Pierre Cardin. He had his own record label. And they were only in Europe. So we were just getting everything we could. And we had to go over to France to renew our visas. So we popped over to France. And we went to the Pousse to look for Le Disque Pierre Cardin. And on the way home, Something took us to the Musée Cardin, and we went, wow, he's got a museum. We didn't know that. And it was closed, but there was a store next door, and we went in, and the guy who worked there, we were showing him a car, and he'd never seen a record from the Pierre Cardin label. And he said, oh, Monsieur Cardin loves to meet people who admire or who appreciate what he does. And we were like, what? There is a Pierre Cardin? We had never thought about it up until then. We were like, how old is he? 95? Wow. Oh, we'd love to meet him. And that's how it started. And we didn't even know at that time that he was the first male model, which is why we wanted you in the film. Right. We didn't know he opened the house of Dior. I mean, this is the guy who, French fashion. If he he, literally, he him. literally got to <laughs> Dior. He was the first hire. And he actually used the key to open the door before Dior came. 1945, which is where Jean Cocteau tapped him to make the costumes for Beauty and the Beast. And he fell in with all those gay intellectuals of France, uh, Pasolini and Jean Marais and Visconti. Visconti. And we didn't know any of this, that he was the, I mean, ready to wear, we might've known. All we knew was the penis-shaped cologne bottle. <laughs> Which I think we all had. I mean, I, I think I still own that bottle from when I was a kid. I'm not sure I actually ever used the actual aftershave or eau de cologne or whatever was in it, but it was that rather unusual sort of shaped bottle with a little head on the top of the silver cap, right? <laughs> I remember it very, very well. And it had, didn't have a red line around the top or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean, really, it literally is. <laughs> I mean, it's extraordinary. The pleasure of watching Nigel. Just do, just do that again. Just describe that again. Describe it one more time. I'm not familiar with it. It's such a pity we're not on television. It's not television, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, mean, you know, it's, it's a very visual thing. It's a very visual. Thing. Someone in the movie starts talking about it, and she's, and it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's architectural, etc. And then you know, Pierre Cardin tells us it's shaped like a penis. She's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, brilliant, brilliant branding, brilliant marketing. I mean, you know, why why go too far away from what everyone would be, is most excited about? You know, although now thinking about it, there's a, probably a good reason why I personally didn't try and you know shake the penis all over my neck as I was putting the put it on. And we did. Your obsession, your obsession though, is that something that is important? Do you think when you're making these documentaries, do you get this obsessed with everybody? Yeah, we do actually. We take a very deep dive into it. It's you know. As we say, you kind of have to fall in love with your subject. It reminds me of making narrative film where you really have to love your characters. It's like as you get involved in making it, you want to be presenting the best thing possible about them. You want to find everything out you can about them. And also with these great people, these figures, you feel a big responsibility to do it and to do it right and to find great things to share with people. And that in this kind of case, we know Mr. Cardin's going to see it. So we want him to feel like, you know, we've done him right, you know? So uh, 
So yeah. I mean, talking about that, that's interesting in itself because it, likewise, although I obviously knew that there, there was a man, Pierre Cardin, because I was very familiar as a, as a model back in the day, but that was 30 years ago. When I first heard you were doing a documentary about him, bless his heart, I mean, I know he's probably 98 or something now, you know, I, I assumed perhaps that he might have even passed away. And I don't mean that in any disrespect. I just purely meant maybe this was a retrospective because he was so old, you know, from, you know, you hear, because you, he's throughout the history of fashion, his name comes up, you know, over and over again, you know, so many people were inspired by him. So, you know, what was that like as far as dealing with a man of his age and his magnitude? How did you get the access? I mean, how did that come about? Once again, it was just divine providence. You know, in the film, how Jean-Paul Gaultier and Philippe Stark talk about how they just met him and he said, you, upstairs. And everyone we met yeah. in his organization. That's, that's the story of my entire modeling career, actually. But anyway. <laughs> but it, he's you upstairs. Yeah, well. You know, people say he's clairvoyant. So I don't know why he said no to everyone. I think we met him and he saw we were a couple and he liked that. And his nephew and his friend said, look, these guys love you. If anyone's going to do a documentary about you, wouldn't you like people who appreciate you? And while you're still here to, to kind of participate enough in making sure that it's your legacy being put forward, because they gave us complete access to their archives. It was like a room that was just full of photographs in file folders that just were labeled things like, you know, Jean Moreau or 1970s fashion or whatever. And we just pulled everything out and we'd start going through and saying, can we get this? Can we get that? We gave them a stack of photos uh, just, you know, to approve that we could get scanned. They didn't want anything to go out. So somebody had to sit and scan it all for us. So they wanted to make sure that like, you know, that they wanted those things to be in the movie and Etc. But they were very. But I mean, they didn't give us any generous. parameters yeah, or no say parameters. push this agenda. They didn't tell us anything, yeah. and we were very nervous when he watched it because he did participate in a biography about ten years ago, and then when it was finished, he read it and said, "I hate this. I'm not going to support it," and had it pulled. Yeah. So we were like, and basically, we're outing him for the first time. So I mean, officially saying you had a lover, I made a lover, and so. You know, we were nervous about Jean Moreau because he didn't talk much about her either. Luckily, we, we seemed to have done it right because he was very enthusiastic. About it. Well, that's what I was curious about too, because I mean, although it, I don't think it was particularly shocking for people to, to hear that revelation, you know, I, I, at the same time, it is a, like you said, it was a sort of a first time it was publicly sort of outed sort of situation. But he is someone, despite his incredible public persona and the fact that you, that, you know, it, but it's, it's, the thing is, is it his public persona or is it the brand's public persona? Because the more I thought about it and have thought about it, and I was sort of racking my mind to think about instances where the man, I met the man or did I hear about, I never did. I never met the man. I worked for Pierre Cardin as a model even, and I never met him. And I know that Naomi Campbell, work for Pierre Cardin and she's in you know, a documentary and you know it's a friend of mine and someone who we got to be in the documentary and she has never met Pierre Cardin. I mean if Naomi Campbell hasn't met him then it's almost as if he's a, like a ghost or something. It was as if you know <laughs> when, how is that possible? What, what, what is it about him that, he, that he's sort of hidden himself from the public eye so much? Well, also we have to thank you for hooking us up with Naomi because she has made a huge impact in this film. Yeah people love her in it. But, you know, oddly enough, it's... Um, uh, I'll always be there as your supermodel hookup, by the way. Our supermodel connection. He's just not one of those people. So he was not interested in being like Carl Lagerfeld, larger than life, or even Calvin Klein, who's out at Studio 54 all the time. Or, you know, he was not... He, he was interested in working and doing his craft and being loved for what he was making so much more than wanting to be the guy that was, you know, front and center. I mean, he- Why though? Is, is there a reason why though? I mean, is that, was that possible to, I mean, I know it's hard, you can't exactly ask him this, maybe you could, but, it, but I, I'm just wondering like, why? Is it because he was a businessman first and foremost as well? I mean, obviously he was a designer first and foremost, but he was an unbelievable entrepreneur and businessman. And I don't yeah. know, did that take away from, because why would you not want to be in the scene in the Studio 54 and the clubbing? And he kind of was, I guess. 
she bought Maxime's in 1981 and had a lot of presided over many, many events there. And parties over the parties and things, true. But I don't think, you know, it's like, again, I think that he loves his own world and he loves that. Like he loves that Maxime's is his scene and his world. But I don't know that he ever necessarily had this desire to put himself out front. I don't know. I mean, maybe that is one of those things. Well, if you're leaving a bit, a bit of a double life, which is that you know that you're leaving this private life where you're a gay man and you don't really want everybody all up in your business, so you just decide, well, I don't need to be out front. I don't know that it has anything to do with his sexuality, but it, but I but he did clearly much more so than than many of the other flamboyant designers not really enjoy that. It seems like he just but wasn't also, looking for it. as our film reveals. At the base of it all is a frustrated actor, right? right. He that wanted to be on the stage, so. But that makes it even more curious. Yeah. When you think about it. Like, so you're a frustrated actor. Why aren't you taking the opportunity of being famous to have everybody talk to and be up front? We started the documentary, and I have to say, 100% honestly, I didn't know what you're coming. No, no, I know. I mean, you know, it's one of those things too. I was, all those things I tried to put myself through. I sort of sat there, you know, when I'm thinking about how, what am I going to talk about? What, what are the right sort of, you know, what do I want to know? What, what is, what, what's missing? And this is someone, someone who, you know, as a young model myself, I worked for him multiple times, the, the brand. And, you know, I did shirts, I did some ties and we did some, you know, various shows and stuff like that. And, I, I unfortunately lost a lot of my own personal archive. Oh, in the flood? In the floods, yeah, when we lost a lot of our stuff, and which is a huge shame. Um, and I've been sort of struggling to find stuff. My mother recently sent, sent me a huge box of stuff which she had had doubles of and in the attic. So I have to now go through digging through all this mountain of stuff. But if I come across anything, I will certainly share it with you. But, you know, I think when I was going through thinking, you know, Pierre Canard, Pierre Canard, what is he... I couldn't even, like you said, I couldn't really think of, of remembering what he looked like from back in the day. And it was a sort of mystery. Almost every other designer I ever worked for, Valentino, Gianfranco Frey, Giorgio Armani, Jean-Paul Gaultier, you know, the list goes on, Kenzo. Uh, it didn't really matter who I worked for. I met them. Every one of them I met, I knew, I had pretty much had dinner with. I, you know, if you were doing the campaign, if you were working at any high level, you got to meet them. That was a part of it. They wanted to be there. But I did all this stuff with Pierre Radin and I never met him, never knew him, never had anything to do with him. And so it's a, and then I heard Naomi didn't meet him either. So that was what was then I'm like, okay, this is a, a thing. It's like a, there's almost a sort of a, maybe his business was so big. It is such a massive, he wasn't in charge of that part. I mean, why would you be if you've got cars and you've got furniture and you've got, you know, you basically, you name it, he stuck his name on it. So going back, was he considered to be a commercial sellout to other designers? Was he frowned upon ever by other designers? Oh, absolutely. When he brought out Pret-a-Porter in 1950? Well, 1960 is when it went to the department. 1960, yeah. But remember, the Chambre Syndicale kicked him out, and that was headed by Pierre Berger, the boyfriend of Yves Saint Laurent. So Pierre was kicked out of the syndicate. The next year, basically, Yves Saint Laurent was given a primer of watching him and the mistakes he made, and then did it himself. But um, every time he sort of broke ground, when he brought the first non-Caucasian model to the runway, it was, you know, everyone, how dare you? And, and then everyone did. Then everyone did. So <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yes, he uh, he took a lot of flack for it, and you know, and he, he, was, he himself says that when it got so broad, when there were eight hundred licenses worldwide, and it was all a new business, and no eight hundred licenses, and no one, and that doesn't mean eight hundred products because there's that's eight hundred license deals worldwide. And then those people all make however many products, right? So, where in you know his his modus operandi, even to this day, is that if you do a license deal with him, he wants to see the fabrics, he wants to see the designs, he oversees everything and makes sure it's to his liking before it goes into production. But when it's that broad, he couldn't control it. And then on top of that, the next thing that happens, of course, are all the knockoffs so that you don't even know aren't from a license deal. And it just gets too far. So he kind of had, he actually, one of the reasons he's lesser known in the U.S., is that in the 90s, he thought it had all gone too far and he pulled, it, he pulled back his license in the U.S. However, he was very proud of at one point being the third largest employer in the world with, I think he had 400,000 employees all worldwide. 
I mean, people just don't think of things like that, do they? They just don't, you don't realize the massive impact that even fashion has in general. I mean, obviously fashion is considered frivolous, but when you realize what, what size multi, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar business and then, you know, huge global employee, uh, you know, well, employer rather. That whatever he does, he's putting photographers to work. He's putting, you know, seamstresses to work. He's putting some photographers to work. Magazines. Models yeah, to work. Like, so many people get jobs out of what he does. And that makes him very, very happy. Yeah. So it sounds like he works incredibly hard. Still, and you know, I mean, to this day, if you want something approved, it's got to go to Cardan. So it's like if if we're working on something and we need to say, hey, is it okay if we put out, I don't know, this poster or something like that? They're like, well, we'll see Mr. Cardan on Thursday and we'll ask him. Is he still quite sort of in control and of like the content of what what's coming out? Yeah, absolutely. Now Rodrigo, who's in the film, Rodrigo Basilicati Cardan, is his nephew, and he's been he's given much over. more, uh, yeah, much more leeway. Uh, over even the time that we've known them. So he moved from being kind of his right-hand man and was always there with him to now being his general manager, artistic director. And he makes a lot of the choices, I think, now and gets to stand in for that. But before it was always it, oh, everything. He still signs on the checks. Yeah, Cardan does. So does that make Nige feel a bit better about the fact that you never met him? He was obviously working too hard to sit around having dinner with models, right? I'm surprised because part of the reason he is in it is to meet the models, right? He likes hanging out with the pretty people. Yeah, he likes hanging out. We we got to hang out with him in Lacoste where he's doing his festival right now, actually. This is making Nige feel really bad, by the way. This is not going to help the fact that Nige never met him, what you're saying right now, but carry on. He likes hanging out with pretty people, meeting models. So we went to the Lacoste Festival two years ago, three years ago to film it. And he's very involved. And he's got all these theater companies coming from all over the world. And the, it's all for dinner. So every night, right, 11, 12, 1 a.m., everyone gathers at his cafe. And he loves talking to everybody. And, yeah. and it doesn't matter if you speak English. He loves, what do you do? And you're... People are talking. You know he doesn't understand, but he's just like, ah. Yeah, yeah. he's very kind. So, so do you think, I mean, with so many, you know, there's been so many great designers over the years and what have you, and this story of the controlling aspect of the brand is not unusual from my experience. I mean, you know, if, whoever it is, like, it's so many levels, like these, whether it's Armani or Valentino, they, they did have their finger on in, in, in every sort of aspect of what they do. I remember working with Valentino and, I remember standing there at one point as a as a model, and they placed five suits around me on the floor in a sort of like a almost like a semicircle. And Valentino walked in, and you know the designers who were from St. Martin's who had who he hired from England to actually do the designs, but he would approve them. Right? He he came out and he looked at them, and he put down his little dog Oliver, and who who is actually one of the one of the lines is named after Oliver is dog. And the dog went up and actually, from what I remember, um, was about to pee on one of the suits. And I suddenly saw it and I lurched forward with my foot as if to nudge the dog off the suit. I didn't think he should be peeing on the suit. And I looked up and I saw the face of the designer drain really quickly. And he looked at me very quickly, went like, no, 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 don't, don't touch his dog. Like that. And I stopped as, as a, before I sort of slightly kicked the dog off the suit. And immediately Valentino picked up the dog, looked and went, yes, I agree, Oliver. That suit is terrible. Get rid of it out of the collection. Oh. You know, and, and, and it was as if the dog had edited the collection, but it was this very odd moment of like the power of, of the edit and how you know, his, his touch was on everything. And everything that I knew about him at that time he was connected to all parts of it, even at the fashion show, watching who walked where and who wore what. And, you know, a man who has a huge, again, a very similar, very big brand where you'll see Valentino on all sorts of things, you know, like Pierre Cardin. It, it, do you think, you know, it, it can survive a brand like Pierre Cardin after Pierre Cardin is, you know, no longer? Well, I mean, you know, Chanel's not alive. Obviously, brands go on, but the question to some extent, is whether or not he will allow it, because well, there, you know, in the film there's that moment that we talk about all of the uh, you know corporate conglomerates that have taken over different brands, and as you go through airports today and you see Chanel and Gucci and Hugo Boss, it's because they all are under those umbrellas, 
And Cardenas has just never chosen to be a part of that. He's still the cheese stands alone. Now, however, we tried to get revive some interest in the brands because we were very interested in getting into that business. It sounded very fun and interesting. And Pierre Cardin, I mean, redoing those retro designs today, they're perfect. You know, so we were talking to some big people, you know, in the sneaker business, and they were talking about buying the whole thing. And there was a price tag. So who knows, you know, his nephew is very, very wanting to continue in the tradition of his uncle. So I don't think he's going to sell it. But, um, you know, we, we still work. We're trying to take meetings, seeing if we can get something going. We're relaunching the brand here in America. In the US. So. Yeah. Well, you know, if you need any help, give me a call. Really? Well, <laughs> Absolutely. I would love that. How, how more, what more fantastic would it be to, to sort of, you know, a brand like Pierre Cardin, which is one of the most classic, you know, brands of all time. You know, and I think too, just getting it right. I think taking it back to the roots. You know, yeah. when it comes to the design, less of the keychain moments. You know, and, and and more of the space age. You know, forward thinking designs that set him apart and the get from the get go. You know, well, the helmets and the and the masks. Oh right, I know. Like, oh. I know, right? We he could be doing a fantastic helmet. You know, space age helmet, which we could all breathe in, and because we could see our faces, and we could look like spacemen. We've done comps. And, you know, oh, my God, it's like his designs are just timeless. Someone did this fantastic post on Instagram, and had 10 different Cardan creations made for COVID, right? Like, perfect for it. 100%, 100%. Is there is someone you think who is a sort of a, a Cardan of our time right now? There's a young designer that is trying to be named Jacquemus. You know him? I've heard. From France. I would say Gautier. Hasn't Gautier, in many respects, sort of had his moment? I mean, you know, Gautier is his last fashion show, and he's, it's his last this, his last that, and he's really reduced what he's done versus sort of a Cardin who is exploded. I mean, there are so many young people out there right now who are creating brands out of nothing, almost. This is an interesting side note. We asked Jean-Paul if he would be our executive producer. And he said, oh, you'd have to run that by my corporation. I don't own my name. Right. No, 100%. And I think that's oh. really the opposite, right, of Cardano, who's yeah. on full ownership, won't sell anything. But you know. like he didn't do it, you know, he could have made Gautier his, um, Yves Saint Laurent was yours project, he could have made him that. But with Philippe Stark, too, he said, you guys have too many ideas. Out. You go do your own thing. You're never going to work well under me. And for the first time in his career, because Pierre is never one to not surprise, He's empowered a young designer named Pierre Cortal and opened up Pierre Cardin Workshop in March in Paris. So he's, it's the first time he's launched a new designer, a young designer. So I hope that takes off. We have not been clearly as in touch as we used to be. So, But if there's like a current designer, I mean, the thing that I would say about current design is that it seems rarely to be that daring. So for, for his time, he was breaking every rule. We may be used to those rules now, so we may look at it and say, oh, an A-frame dress or this or that, or different fabrics and all those kind of things that Cardin did in his time, even fashion for men or fashion for children, things that didn't exist until Cardin did them. That's what you'd be looking for to say, well, who's the new Cardin? So who's doing something that's that far out of the box and saying, we want to do something that's completely different and reinvent the concept of what fashion is? I don't know that we see that right now. I think everything is so huge in corporate to break through to anybody that if that person exists and they're doing that, it's, you know, kind of boutique and small and not becoming sort of like the next Victorier. No, 100%. And I think on top of that, though, you know, ironically, uh, Cardin was also responsible for creating this very large, you know, big business within fashion, where all of a sudden a fashion brand becomes, you know, synonymous with everything. You can touch anything you like. You can, you know, peanuts. Sure, why not? Cut out peanuts. You know, what? You know, what are you talking about? Things that are completely unrelated all of a sudden can become related because why shouldn't everything be in fashion? Well, I live the lifestyle. That's sort of what he was saying. Is that it's like so if you want if you want to embrace the entire aesthetic, you can live the lifestyle in every way. You can kiss your wife goodbye who's wearing a cardan 
dress while you're wearing a cardan suit, walk out over your cardan carpet to your car that's cardan. Smelling like cardan. <laughs> Use your keychain to open it. It's like everything is sort of enveloped inside of the brand. And it's because of that idea that, uh, that Amber Huchar talks about in our film, which is that you want to identify with something that is good taste. So you're, you, by putting the brand all over yourself, are saying, I identify with this thing that I think is good taste. And remember, Pierre is the guy who took this from here to here. No, absolutely, 100%, 100%. He took that logo and decided to put it on the, on the front. No, absolutely. Which is, you know, I, it's funny because it's, it's one of the classic places when you, when you see, uh, you know, an embroidered shirt with your initials, you know, you, you know, you have a couple of places whether you're going to put them on your, on your, right here on the cuff. Some people put them right here. And he just realized that that was a spot, right? That was it. He took that spot and put the logo right there. And with his monograms. Yeah, no, well, this what he did. It just said PC, and they were um, stitched on, and they looked kind of even like a kid did them. But it's just PC, right? It was just like so bold. Very, very bold, very bold, but classic at the same time. And that's the the thing. It wasn't it wasn't gauche, you know, really, which is I think which was so brilliant about it because it was then taken by brands like Benetton and what have you and turned into something which was quite obnoxious, where they would flash, <laughs> you know, like it's written right across your chest. You're walking around like a billboard. Not to say that your T-shirt is anything other than a complete, you know. Uh, <laughs> from the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah. The one person we really wanted to get into the film that we, didn't, that we didn't get was to talk about some of these issues, Dapper Dan, because of the way that he took that in the 80s and then kind of turned it on its head and said, well, it, why can't we now say that these luxury brands are almost public domain and we can just take them and use them however we want? If you're going to push them at us, we might steal them and do what we want with them. Uh, so it was like we thought that was kind of an interesting, different twist and perspective on it. But he just wasn't available. When we were but Dion Warwick was. Yes. <laughs> and who is fabulous. How was that? What was it like talking to someone like that? She's, she's texting with David every day. They became <laughs> friends. She said we had front row center seats when, um, when she, she performs reopens, again. Yeah, when she reopens in Vegas. Do you know what? I have interviewed a lot of famous people in my life at this point. Now we've done Sharon Stone and Cher, you know, OTA. We've done all sorts of uh, famous people. I don't really get nervous and my knees don't shake. But when Dionne Warwick walked in the room, she had a shoulder to floor fur coat on in New York. And she, those cheekbones rise up to the sky and out comes that voice. And I just was like, I'm an, I couldn't talk. She was she's so glamorous and so great. But like with most of those really great people, she makes you feel at ease. So she just immediately kind of undercut that and started just hanging out and having fun with us. And before you knew it, we were and on camera and talking. She's great. I was going to say, it wouldn't have been a very good interview otherwise, really. Well, and then we said, we're also doing a documentary on Trini Lopez. Would you mind being in that? And so she's in that too. Yeah. Because they were both on Hullabaloo and they were both minorities, right, in the 60s, trying to break through. So she turned out to be a great double interview. You know, I think I needed credit in the in the movie. Um, you know, just as a, a celebrity hustler. You know, as a sort of a, <laughs> yeah. trying to hook you up. Although I think I did see my name. I did see my name in the credit. We oh, always we not thank <laughs> I say, you know, just in general, regardless of whether I'm connected to the movie at all. If I've done anything, I just wish to be there. I you think know. you actually are in the thanks of well, hit so hard for sure, uh, and Jane Mansfield. Because you always give us stuff too when we have to do our Kickstarter things. There you go. Look, fantastic. House of Cardin. Amazing. Where can people see it? Where, what, what, is, what should they be doing? So starting, uh, I mean, actually now you can pre-order, but starting August 28th, it will be in these virtual cinemas. If you go to houseofcardin.com and click on playing now, there'll be a whole list of theaters that it's playing in and in order to support the theaters, because they're all kind of these independent cinemas trying to survive, if you go through their portal and you use their name, they get a little portion of the, of the fees and they also give you $2 off, you know, on, on the rental. But then starting September 15th, it'll be broad and it'll be on Amazon and iTunes and all of that kind of stuff because it'll, it'll start the proper streaming release. And there's a collectible DVD Cardan, you know, everything's collectible. <laughs> so uh, that comes out October 13th, but pre-order now on Amazon too. 
Fantastic. And I've seen it and it is, it is great. And if you are a fan of fashion, you're going to love it. And if your, your style, the whole look and feel of it is just is a, a complete trip down fashion memory lane. It's so brilliant and, and so inspiring. What a, what a character. And, uh, you know, he's obviously got to be just chuffed that you guys did such a great job, as you did for me too, by the way. So, you know, these guys helped me with my book, Beauty Equation, and they did a beautiful, beautiful job. But before we let you go, we have a rather fun thing we call Last Orders on Shaken and Stirred, and it's a sort of a little rapid-fire question moment. Are you guys up for it? Yes, sir. Window or aisle seat? Window. Aisle. See, look, we're like, we get along so well. <laughs> <laughs> I get the aisle, he gets the window. <laughs> I was hoping that was going to be the answer. I was, I was curious if you were both going to say aisle and both say window, and I was going to, okay, this is, that, that would have been even more interesting. Okay, first celebrity crush. Definitely. What's the what's the name of Denny Terrio <laughs> on uh, on Dance Fever? Whoa, okay, but Jeff Bridges. That's a, that's a yeah, he was in a movie called Hearts of the West and Rancho Deluxe. And I just I remember as a young man he did something. <laughs> well, no kidding, no kidding. That's a, that really took me by surprise. Okay, fashion trend you'd like to see revived? Well, duh, space age fashion. I'll go with that. <laughs> oh, okay. That was too easy. It's cheating. You have to have your own. Right you cheated. <laughs> Classic cartoon. Well, caftans. We love caftans. Oh, yeah. Caftans. Right? So, uh, uh, you know, we moved to Palm Springs and we said we're going to become old queens with rings on every finger, wearing caftans and drinking tumblers of cocktails. And we're pretty close. We're almost there. We got a sewing mission. <laughs> Although I think it's more like a moo-moo. But anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> In the movie of your lives, this is Tom's favorite question. In the movie of your lives, who would you want to play you? Nigel Barker. <laughs> no, I'm only playing P. David Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> With this look. Uh, for me, it's Stanley Tucci. That's just wishful thinking. <laughs> James Bader. Jeez. See, I knew you were lying when you said me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question. Shaken or stirred? Shaken. 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 If we're talking martinis, shaken always. Yeah. I love it. No, we weren't talking martinis. I was just pretty talking you, but, uh, but I love it. <laughs> but you're both shaken. <laughs> Guys, thank you so, so much. House of Cardin, go and check it out and please support these wonderful filmmakers and also the, the, the film industry itself. We, they need you to get out there and watch these films and, and it's an education too. So not, what could be better than being educated and having a visual wonderland you know, in front of you? P. David Eversol, Todd Hughes. Thank you so, so much, guys. And once again, guys, this is Shaken and Stirred. Check us out on Instagram. And please don't forget to share the word, download, and subscribe. Sending you guys lots of love. All the best. And cheers. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye.